ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and we are bringing to you a really, really interesting book today, and I absolutely love the cover and love the title. It's called Simple Complexity, a management book for the rest of us. And this book is about a guide to systems thinking, and I'm first going to introduce you to our author and then let him tell us a little bit about what system thinking is all about. The author of the book is William Donaldson, Ph.D., but he goes by Willie. Willie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Chickie. It's great to be here. Well, Willie, we talk on this show about changing the game for folks, and I don't want to dive right into the book just yet because I do want to talk a little bit about your background. So why don't, why don't you tell us about you, and I'm going to let you just jump into that story wherever you would like. Terrific. Well, thank you. Um, well, I am an engineer twice over, Chicky, and I've been uh, working for 40 years to overcome that disability. But it sticks <laughs> I was going to say, are you a recovering engineer? <laughs> exactly, but it sticks with me every day. And, and I have to owe that to my dad. My dad gave me the early books. He was an aeronautical engineer and gave me the early books on systems thinking when it was just emerging in the 60s and 70s and got me infected with the disease. Um, and what is extraordinary, what really leads to the book is um, I just assumed when I came out of university with an engineering degree and had studied systems that everybody would understand how systems fundamentally act and behave. Um, and I was shocked when I found that that was not the case. And then as, as I went through my business career, uh, got my MBA, then taught in an executive MBA program and taught for 30 years, all the time I used systems thinking as a way to run my businesses and, and you know, guide me in the way I thought well, as a board member, et cetera. And I've, I've been astounded that it just hasn't gotten more traction in the business world. Um, I went back and got my Ph.D. In, in systems engineering, and all through my life of, of both you know, sort of a parallel career of both running businesses and then teaching in business schools and in, and in corporate universities and doing executive education and consulting, people have said, wow, this system thinking um, as, a, as you use it is really extraordinary in management. You should write a book. And so I, I finally did. Um, I sort of gathered up all of the 30, 35 years of, of notes and thoughts and, and mental models that I had and uh, tried to make it a, a very much an approachable um, working man and woman's guide to system thinking and running a business, which um, can seem to be a, an overly complex and overwhelming task at some times. Well, and I, I love the title of, or, or actually the subtitle of, for the rest of us, <laughs> right? Because that really makes this approachable. And again, you've got this gorgeous cover of, of uh, the, the nuance between the word simple and, and complexity. And it's got this, and, and it's a, a beautiful design behind it that 
that could be a complex design, but it makes it look simple. And I, I'm sure that that was by design. I, I know your, your publisher, Morgan James, uh, has some really, really talented people on the design side. So, so tell me how the name evolved and, and tell, tell me a little bit about the process of publishing this book. Well, as I say, you know, it, it came from 30 years of, of being encouraged to, to do it. And, and as I started to put together thoughts, et cetera, I, I thought about some of the, the major themes that had always um, sort of inspired me to, to think about um, systems and, and how you think about them. And one of the, the fundamental tenets is that you cannot deal with very complex systems as a whole. So we then, uh, and this is true of life, this is true of the sciences, we break them down um, into their component parts um, and in a reductionist fashion. So you can't think about everything that's going on in the world, so we break it into physics and mathematics and probability. But the assumption in the world is that when you bring all those things back together, if you study them individually, you'll understand the whole. And there's a concept I talk about in the book called hermeneutics. It derives from the, the German term. And it is that you cannot understand the whole without understanding and knowing the parts, but you can't know the parts without understanding the whole. So it's that circular sort of logic. And that's why the title is simple underscore complexity, tying the two together. When we run businesses, what we often do is we can't deal with them in, in, the, in the, the whole, so we then break it down into the smaller parts to make them more simple and more understandable, but we forget that they're tied together, and we start acting as if, gee, I'm in sales, I can just do sales and, and everything will be fine, forgetting that the complexity is following behind us and is probably right. going to bite us at some point. So that's right. part of the, the, the way we came to the title. Well, and one of the things that you talk about as you're introducing us to systems thinking is really how important uh, purpose is. And, you know, if you don't know where you're going, uh, even the process of trying to analyze whether it's, you know, looking at, at the individual item or, or the the item as a whole, mm-hmm. um, your your purpose in learning even has to be identified. So talk to us a little bit about purpose. Well, it's absolutely critical, as you know from reading the book, that purpose is such an important part. And and one of the um, tenets of systems thinking is that when you bring individuals or elements, as they're often called, together in a system, they're going to seek a purpose. And we all do this. If you and, and Patty and I got together on this phone call and didn't know what we were going to be doing, it would be 10 seconds before one of us said, so what are we doing here? (laughs) <laughs> and Simon Sinek, Sinek wrote that great book, Start With Why. And, and yes. so mankind has always sought the purpose of why am I doing these things, but we we often lose sight of that or the why gets disconnected in um, companies. As, as you go down the layers, the why becomes more and more obscure. Maybe it gets um, compartmentalized, and the why in finance is different than the why in marketing, and that's one of the fundamental flaws of um, enterprises as they grow is purpose starts to become fuzzy. Right. One of the things I love about the book is that throughout the book, uh, first of all, it's 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 got a lot of, of diagrams, and I'm such a visual person, so uh, I love it when you have things like that. But you also have helpful hints. 
And uh, we aren't going to have time to go through all of the tenets uh, of systems thinking, but you do uh, indicate in the book that you can go to simplecomplexitybook.com and download uh, this uh, bookmark that has all of the, the tenets on it. And, and I highly recommend uh, that that be the first thing if you're listening to this uh, you know, make yourself a note or, uh, you know, if you're driving and listening to this or at the gym and working out, uh, make a note to yourself uh, when you get home uh, to go to that website because I, I think it will be very, very helpful. Yes, and I've tried throughout the book to, to do that, to make it very approachable. You know, there have been some great authors who have written on systems thinking in the past, but their, their work tends to be somewhat obtuse and hard to approach for the non-initiated. Right. So I've tried to make this very much a, a practitioner's guide, very approachable, and, and as, you know, as you know, I do use a lot of notes from the field. Um, right. you know, here's how this, this played out in a real situation, and I'm hoping that people will really be able to connect with those and see themselves or see their organization in those stories. Right, and and you also have a, a very interesting mechanism that you're using in the book, uh, and because I, I interview a lot of authors, I see a lot of approaches, but I have never seen this before, and I absolutely love it. And you have uh, tips, again, but they're not just called tips. One is called beware, and one is called behold. Yeah. So talk to me about how that evolved, because again, that is not a normal mechanism that you see in a book. Well, I, I I love the the juxtaposition of those two, and and again the the going back to this sort of circular reference, the things that you can behold, the spectacular things that systems can do for you, the fact that people will seek a purpose. If you bring a good group of people together, they'll seek a purpose, and it's usually going to be a great purpose um, that that they sort of derive themselves. And if you can harness that energy, it's you can behold wonderful things that come from it. But the very same concept is beware. If you bring that same group together and you don't give them a clear purpose of what you want them to do, they may go do something that you didn't intend at all. <laughs> exactly. And so I just think it, it bespeaks the, the sort of human side of it that you've got to be aware of how powerful this invisible um, sort of essence of a system is that's swirling all around you. Right. And when you talk about simplicity and complexity, you bring in uh, some quotes, one uh, by Jeff Hawkins that is, complexity is a symptom of confusion, not a cause. And then your beware tip is, systems thinking does not make the mess go away. The mess remains, but you're better able to understand and manage it. And, you know, again, just the simplicity of that tip, that, that beware tip, I, I think is just so so powerful. Well, and I really try to, to bring it home to sort of human condition, things that we can all feel and sense. I have a dear friend who's a, who's a golf fanatic, and he buys a new set of clubs almost every year, and it's that hope, um, you know, that, that if I just do this, something's going to change, and I, I want people to realize that, no, you've got, you may not be able to really <laughs> solve the problem, but at least you'll be aware of what, what the problem is exactly. that you're dealing with. So let's talk about the enterprise 
as a system. So, so we've, we've now completed the introduction to systems thinking where hopefully those who are listening to you at least have an idea of what that means, of the ability, you know, to break into pieces and parts and, and really understand your purpose in understanding it to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. And, and just the whole issue of context. So now we're talking about an enterprise and, and, you know, any any particular type of enterprise, I mean, is it size that uh, belies it being a system, or does a system exist even in a, a one-person enterprise? Well, I think the, the concept of a system, it, you know, it resides in a one-person enterprise. What's easy is that you can integrate the purpose, the elements, and the, the interactions. You don't have to negotiate with anybody. But the complexity <laughs> starts as soon as you bring one more person in. And, and yes. I think that even if you're a, alone in your company, you have to realize that you're starting to set up systemic ways of thinking about the world and doing things that can trap you or can liberate you. And so right. I think it really does scale up and down. And that's one of the concepts I talk about in Chapter 2 in the Enterprise as a System is that recursive pattern. If you use the, the construct of a holon with with elements interacting with a purpose, it becomes a very simple yet very powerful tool for looking at that recursive pattern and how it shows up in your enterprise again and again and again. Right, because uh, where you go, there you are, right? Exactly. (laughs) And I'm in this interesting place where I have been uh, building a product uh, for a couple of years. I'm I'm a a technology inventor Mm -hmm. uh, and and a a solutions uh, creator, and uh, I am just moving from that stage into actually being an organization, actually pulling together my team and then uh, even though the company has existed all along, right? It, uh, it's going from being a one-person company to all of a sudden I've got a team of, of seven, and they're not all on board full-time yet. You know, we're in, in, still in the, the rollout and, and the building up of that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm looking at, at that very thing of, you know, the hierarchy I, I even had to create within how I managed my time because I was doing product management and marketing and, you know, long-term strategy and finance, and, you know, I was having to wear all of those hats. Mm-hmm. And now the process of giving those responsibilities to others and, and achieving this Vulcan mind meld, as I say, that has to happen mm-hmm. in order for me to really let go Right, mm-hmm. and to let other people actually, uh, you know, take uh, both the responsibility and, and you know, just the actual day-to-day tasks. So I'm interested in uh, what you found in looking at the findings of Deming, uh, you know, who I think most people have heard about, but you might want to give a little context to why that yes. is important. Yes. Um, I think one of the the absolute um, rock stars of management thinking, and I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people think that what his great contribution was was just in statistical process control and in manufacturing, and they didn't they didn't really grasp how powerfully he viewed the enterprise as a system. And I think the most alarming finding and, and revealing finding was throughout his work, he found that upwards of 94% of all of the errors, defects, misunderstandings, misdirection uh, in enterprises were systemic. 
And if you think about it, it makes sense. People want to do the right things. If you have people that want to do the wrong things, you've hired poorly or you've developed them poorly. But most people want to do the right things. The, the system causes them to do the wrong thing or to do something that's not quite right. And that's the power of the system. And we see that again, the Gallup organization surveys organizations year after year. And the number's actually been rising. Six, over 64% of all of the surveyed employees in thousands and thousands of companies say they either are actively or, or disengaged at work. They right. don't know what the purpose is. They don't know how they're supposed to add value. They don't know what they're supposed to do. And so they just look around and see the system at work and assume, oh, well, that's what I should do. And I think that's one of the great opportunities is understanding that the system is so powerful in guiding behaviors and then making sure that system is correct. Right. And I'm interested in in the concept of bottlenecks and the theory of constraints because, mm-hmm. again, you know, as an early-stage entrepreneur, you know, quite often the – the bottleneck uh, is you, right? Yep. Uh, the person who's who's looking at the challenges, and and you know my constraint has been largely you know revenue and and having the money to do what I needed to do. But there there's a whole other series of of bottlenecks and constraints, and and I'd love to hear the the theory behind that. Well, so um, what what I think the most important takeaway for your listeners is that there will always be a bottleneck. And as you said, it, it may not be the one that you think. It may be, whether it's money or time or whatever, um, you have to really look at where that bottleneck is. And you have to understand that even if you relieve the bottleneck, you're, it's going to just migrate somewhere else. And that's the, the critical um, thing and no amount of of optimization or perfection around the the bottleneck is going to change your your course. So one of the the sort of counterintuitive management um, findings from that is often you have to suboptimize things before the bottleneck to optimize throughput. So in in the case of not having enough money then you need to scale back to where the amount of money is significant enough to allow you to do, you know, and reach some sort of milestone in the program. Or you have to release that constraint and go find more money, whether it's in cash flow or investors, et cetera. Right. Right, absolutely. And and so then the next chapter talks about the genesis of, of your system, and, and you talk about an interesting concept called invisible assumptions. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it's interesting. It's kind of a straw poll I've been doing for years with companies just to see how how widely people are operating with assumptions that they've they've never verbalized, and yet they continue to drive. So I'll, I'll give an example. I think I use it in the book of, of a family business that I worked with that was terrible at one of their businesses. And when I got involved with a group of folks, um, we asked, why are you still in this business? And they just assumed that it was because their family had been in that business since its inception. And so the uh, the unstated, the invisible assumption is we have to stay in this business because this is where our, our parents or grandparents started the business. Well, once you state it in those terms, it doesn't make any sense anymore. And, and a, a classic example I use in the book is that every company on earth is assuming that the sun is going to rise again tomorrow. And 
it's a good assumption because we have thousands of years of recorded history that indicate, yes, that's a good assumption, but it's still an assumption that we're going by every day. And I think our readers and, and listeners would be surprised if they start to really articulate the assumptions that they are really you know, basing their, their business on is a, is a key one, because it is all assumptions. Right. Right, definitely. And and one of the interesting things, and again, just using my own example of being a, a solopreneur for a long time and then transitioning into being an entrepreneur where you've got people around you, is articulating those assumptions and getting them, you know, actually written down so that other mm-hmm. people can, can react to them. Right. And, and so... You also talk, though, about the management paradox. Mm-hmm. So, so tell us what the components are of that. Yes. The, so the, the paradox is that as managers, um, we strive to, and in fact, if you've been, if been to business school or taken classes, you've been taught to try to optimize your particular area, of whether you're the CFO or the controller or a salesperson, it's it's sort of assumed that I should just optimize everything around my particular area uh, of influence. And that's exactly what you want people to do. But the paradox is that may be exactly the wrong thing to do for the system as a whole. Maybe you should actually sub-optimize your area to optimize the whole. And that's just a management concept that's very hard for people to grasp that I shouldn't just think about my own area. I have to think about how it fits the whole system. One of the quotes that I use in the book extensively that I love is, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it's getting today. And <laughs> you just have to see that, and so you have to step back from the system and, and from take a system's perspective and say, is the, is, the, is the benefit I'm starting to derive in my particular area, is that really systemic or is it just related to my department? And will it have some other second-order effect further throughout the system. So then as we move on into, into part two of the book, um, you, you start talking about the enterprise management system, and you begin uh, with the most common management elements, and you bring back this, this notion of the recursive pattern, uh, only now we're talking about uh, the redo of that. <laughs> Right, right, and, and and reassembly and and moving forward so that you can actually put that system to work. Mm-hmm. So so comment on that for us, if you will. Yeah. So the first part of that is one of the things that I found over the years in teaching management and being on boards and and running companies and being an avid reader is that that one there's just a tremendous amount of management text that comes out to people. And much of it is repetitive. And so I was struck by the notion of systems thinking that um, that there are things called archetypes. And an archetype is a pattern or set of dynamics or patterns that emerge again and again and again precisely because they are fundamental to the system. And so my mm-hmm. premise was that in management there are some fundamental elements that will show up again and again. And so for about 10, 12 years I was doing research along with my students uh, lately on what are the most common management elements and, and how are they sort of assembled. 
and that what's yielded is the seven elements that I talk about in the book of, of governance and leadership and culture um, and the way you know employees learn through the system, the structure of the system um, and the and the um, organizational systems, et cetera. And we found what we think a compelling evidence of an archetype. And the point of that is don't believe that particular archetype or whatever, but just realize that there are seven or six, seven elements that are going to emerge in your business, whether you want them to or not. There will be a governance function in your system, whether you want it to be there or not, and you need to pay attention to that. There will be a leadership style in your organization by design or by default, and I think that's the key is then taking those seven and really making sure that you assess those because there's a reason they've showed up for hundreds of years in management thought, and that's because they are fundamental to the system. Right, right. And so let's talk a little bit about culture uh, and, and how culture, which is, is you know thought of as being kind of a softer kind of thing, fits into the system, right, which, which is by its nature something a little bit more rigid. Mm-hmm. So the, the key thing there, it goes back to the tenet of systems thinking of emergent behaviors, that systems, when they come together, when you bring elements and they start to interact with a purpose, there will emerge certain dynamics and certain behaviors, and culture is one of those emergent behaviors. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. There's no direct access to it, but we all know that the corporate culture is a very powerful um, aura that surrounds the the enterprise, and that's the key: is that y- you will have a corporate culture, and it's going to reflect the actions of leadership. You can write all of the the value statements you want. You can write all of the leadership statements you want. You can write all the vision statements and purpose statements. But the system and the people in the system are going to look at your actions to see if you support that or not. Um, And to give you an example, I went to Enron's website the day they filed for bankruptcy and downloaded their values. And as you might imagine, they had transparency and honesty and all of the usual ones, and they didn't follow any of them. And I think that's the the danger is that people think, oh, it's a soft thing, I can't do anything about it. No, you absolutely can, but you can only affect it indirectly, and that's through your actions and your leadership behaviors. So one of the key points there, and it goes back to the um, tenets of systems thinking, is that systems, when you bring elements together and they start to interact on purpose, will... Um, start to have what are called emergent behaviors. So behaviors will emerge from that system, whether you wanted them to or not, and culture is one of the classic emergent behaviors. It will emerge from bringing those people together, and the key thing is it will reflect the management's actions and leadership um, style. It, It is inevitable that you're going to have it, and it's one of those things that we tend to only want to manage the hard things, the things that we can see and feel and touch and, and control. Culture is not one of those. You can't get at it directly. It is You can right. only influence it, and the way you influence it is through your behavior. So the example I use is, is I went up to Enron's website when they filed for bankruptcy. The day they filed for bankruptcy and on their website was there were their values. I downloaded those, and they were, of course, you know, leadership and honesty and transparency and 
and financial <laughs> due diligence. And so this stuff's easy to write about, but the system is always going to be, and the occupants of the system are always going to be watching and sensing to see if, in fact, those behaviors are are correct and aligned with what you're saying. Uh, so it's walking the talk. And, and so that's one of the key powerful tools of, of culture. And that's why having an enterprise management system, you have to understand that it is part of the system and all of the elements of the system have to reflect those values and those actions. Right. So having said that, that, that you really can't touch it and, and you can read what people write about it, what are some of the signs of cultural trouble within an organization? Well, so there are, there are a number. You start to see um, a you know, good example is where purpose starts to get flexed and, and changed within the different areas of the, of the department. Now, it's natural to have different um, cultural changes when you go from, say, finance to sales and marketing. Right. But right. The, the basic values ought to remain the same, whether it's customer service or the way you treat people in civility, et cetera. Um, so it's absolutely important that you that purpose be one of the the key. You know, there, there's clarity and consistency along those. Um, a lack of agreement about what's important to the organization and to the people in the organization, and then just seeing disorganized day-to-day -day activities can lead you to, um, you know reassessing where you are in terms of, of culture. Why are people doing those things? Because they're, they're obviously seeing the actions and mimicking the actions of management. Right, right. So you talked about one of, one of the things that is really important is the whole issue of employee learning and their mm -hmm. development within the system. And that in order for that to really work, you've got to teach the system because it may not be intuitively obvious to everyone. No, it's not, and, and that's why most corporate universities exist, is to let people know this is the way we do things at GE, at Hewlett-Packard, at um, you know, whatever large organization you might want to um, talk about. And those very same um, understandings have to be in place in your company because people are going to assume what – the, the elements of the system are if you don't provide clarity on those and, and you know, right. training and development along those lines. So it's absolutely critical to have that kind of transparency. And it's one of the things a lot of owners struggle with is giving that clarity and that purpose because they haven't yet refined it for themselves. They haven't really, right. you know, clarified it for themselves. Well, again, I think it's one of one of the reasons that a business plan document still exists. And, you know, for many years I've had a consulting firm where, you know, I was called on to help people write their business plans, and, and usually that was to raise money. And now investors actually like this new thing called a business plan canvas, which is just like literally the thumbnail of everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while, while I'm actually a huge fan of that, uh, because it, it's, you know, like the bird's eye view of the system, right? But there is still something magical about being able to articulate those things that have been just really between the ears of a founder or a leader, 
that that don't really ever get written down. And and I, I want to make sure that we don't lose that in this new new quest for ultra simplicity, right? Because we've taken the complexity of a hundred, hundred and fifty page business plan and distilled it down to two pages. You know, maybe with a business model behind it. Absolutely. You know, critically important, and that's what I talk about in the chapter on planning in the system, Chicky, is, is um, the, the goal of the planning process, people think, is the development of the plan and, like you say, the business model <laughs> canvas, this one page. Right, but right. Yes, that is one of the outputs, but it is just an, it's an, it is a, an artifact of the process and the most important yes. Part of it is the discussions, the, the strategic discussions that you have, sharing the direction and the purpose and the goals and all of the the actions that have to occur. If you don't do that part and just show somebody the business model canvas or even the 150-page business plan and say, here, here's what you're going to do, they're not invested at all in what goes into that plan. And they exactly. may or may not believe, they may not understand the assumption. So. People get it wrong, and I talk about the going beyond strategy to purpose. The key part of your strategic planning process is to build a rich, engaging purpose in your people so that they see the same things you do. They have the same assumptions you have going forward. They're aligned, and more importantly, they're invested themselves. That People right. can't act accordingly. I talk about the area of freedom. They're not going to step out unless they know where it's safe to step and how to think about it and where to go. Right. And I love the, the terminology that you use in, in this chapter about planning because you talk about how you drive the plan decisions down through the organization. And one of the hallmarks of my consulting practice uh, over the last 21 years is we have got a, a proprietary three-day uh, planning session that takes people from a concept or something that they want to do to shift direction of the organization all the way down through a you know six or seven hundred line Microsoft project plan, and and again that the plan is more the artifact of what has happened during those three days and and exactly what you described of getting that buy-in and one of the last things we do is come up with that that elevator pitch of what are you going to tell people that you've been doing for the last three days especially in an organization that used to take an entire quarter to produce a plan and now in three days you've, you've got an executable measurable plan mm-hmm. and and so driving the plan down through the organization has to do with having everybody on the same page, right? And and to really buy in to all of the assumptions, um, mm-hmm. you know, in order to to actually go back to work and get the plan done. Right. And one of the benefits for owner founders that that they tend to resist is. Um, and I know I did this as a young CEO. I was a CEO at age 26, and, and I knew what I didn't know, but I felt I had to be the smartest person in the room when it came to strategic <laughs> planning. I had to have all the answers, and I realized right. very quickly I'm not that smart, and <laughs> I need bright people. So unleashing the people that you have and letting them participate gets you a better, richer, more robust plan and relieves some of your burden of having to, to think that you have to do it all. Right. You know, and then then you talk about structure and control and feedback and metrics and and all of those things that are so so important uh, in a plan because how do you know if you've succeeded? Right. 
Right. And and one of the first things that, that a lot of people skip over, and I talk about it extensively, is structure in the system. And I use the, the note from the field. When, when my parents were building a house years ago, I, I, I was very young, and I asked the architect, how many views or, you know, pieces of paper do you need to show the house? And he had that great response, which was, as many as it takes for your parents to see exactly what they have in their their mind's eye, for the zoning people to be able to approve it, and for the builder to be able to build it. And we we lose sight of that. Most people, if you ask them the structure of their company, they'll give you an org chart and say, there it is, this is what it looks like. That doesn't begin to describe the structure of your system and your right. your enterprise. And so I encourage people to really let their people know, look, here are all the views of the system that you need to understand. Here's the team view. Here are all of our processes. Here's, here's the way we look at, you know, leadership in the company. I use a servant leader model. So yes. that's, that's one of those overlooked parts that I think people think, oh, yeah, structure is just the org chart and, and move on. No, you've got to understand the system needs much more information than that, and the occupants of the system need much more information. Mm. And then the control, we all have to realize that it's just a following effect. Going back to that quote I used, that all systems are perfectly designed to get the results they're doing. We try to manage the results, but the results you can't manage, they're going to be what they are. You have to go back and look at the system and also going back to Deming's findings and, and the findings of, of um, Daniel Pink and some other people, and that is we tend to reward individuals for system performance and to, and to punish people for system performance. And if you understand that the system is responsible for much of the behavior, you start to rethink that and say, wait a minute, can't we come up with, one, better systems and then better ways to align incentives and people with the system? Right, right. So what we've been talking about so far, uh, and again, because I've been reflecting back on my own situation of having pretty much a clean slate, right, and and being able to build a system and an organization and, you know, put the team in place, uh, not everybody has that luxury. They have got systems that are not working well, yep. and they actually need to begin with orienting themselves to where they are and diagnosing mm-hmm. uh, both the current system and its occupants. And I, I've never thought it, thought of it in those terms, and, and that really gives fresh perspective on this. So, so how do you get folks started on that journey when what they have is either non-existent, it's random and haphazard, or it's actually broken? Well, the the best way that I recommend in the book, and this is obviously a little bit self-serving, but is if the if the idea of systems thinking and the fundamental elements, the seven fundamental elements, speak to you, then use those mental models as a di- set of diagnostic tools for your current organization. Even though you didn't get a chance to set it up, um, you know, um, de novo go ahead and and let's do an assessment and in fact if you go if your readers go to or listeners go to my website um, simplecomplexitybook.com i also have an organizational assessment tool there that they can download and just go through and answer some questions about leadership and governance and the system all the way through and start there start to identify what parts of the system might be at risk is it do we have a planning problem is it a leadership problem is it a governance problem
problem and prioritize where to jump in because you can't jump into everything all at once. And and you also the caution is you don't want to go changing everything all at once. You want to make sure that as you change in the organization. So the the last part of the book is all about orienting yourself to your current um, system and diagnosing where the challenges might be and then making sure that you understand the change management process uh, through the system as you Right, you and I was just going to bring that up because just as soon as you get everything set, something major is going to change. And whether it's something competitively, something yep. in the economy, um, you know, I have spent my whole adult life in, in the travel industry, and as I take a look at, at the ups and downs of the travel industry, it's usually been, you know, wars, rumors of wars, terrorism, mm -hmm. yep. pandemic, epidemic, right? And it's big things. Mm -hmm. um, so so managing change and stress, I think, is is the other side of all of this, that if you've got a system that hopefully you have also built in the ability um you know, because change is a continuum, as as you've said. It isn't an event. It's going to happen. Exactly. And this goes back to the concept of the management paradox, is the paradox is we, we try to um, make our systems repeatable and, and um, predictable, et cetera, but yet, as you said, everything in the outside world is changing. Uh, now, it depends on certain industries change faster than others and change faster at different times. But that's one of the paradoxes is to balance an organization that is both repeatable and consistent but also ready to change. And that's where the biggest change elements that are so hard to deal with is when you get too far away and the change becomes dramatic. You know, if we have to make small changes in our life or our process or our daily work, we can accommodate those reasonably well, but it's the large wrenching changes that really hurt, and yet right. that's what we tend to avoid is making change, and then it builds up and builds up and builds up, and then we are terrified of it. And so understanding how people go through that change continuum and how they go through a learning continuum is critical for management. One of the, again, sort of counterintuitive findings that I cite is our, our tendency under stress and when we need to change is to go faster and speak louder and demand more and that may be precisely the wrong thing particularly if your people mm -hmm. are ready for it they're the the very first thing they're going to do is shrink their area of freedom because they're not going to know what the new changes are they're not going to know what the new expectations are until you lead them through it right right so I'm, I'm interested in how technology plays into this and also how you build innovation into the system. And I'm, I'm a huge proponent of innovation and creativity being the lifeblood of who a company is, right? Because if, if you aren't looking to reinvent yourself, you know, constantly, it's really, really tough to have a sustainable business. That's correct. And and so two components of it. One is, you know, the, the technological and process part of it is a lot of managers be, don't tend to think systemically when they, they implement a process change or a new technology. They'll they'll give the job to their IT head and say, just, yeah, go ahead and upgrade to Windows 10 or whatever the, the software might be. 
and they forget that they're imposing a dramatic change on lots of people in the system. And so thinking through those kinds of process changes and um, technology changes is really important, and and migrating them up to the owner-founder or CEO level is critical. We tend to push them down and say, oh, no, IT is going to take care of that, or accounting is going to take care of it, or sales is going to implement their particular process change but it almost always cuts across the organization, and so understanding that it is systemic. And then the second part of it is you have to build an innovative company and culture if you want to be innovative. And, and our, again, the management paradox is a lot of the predictability and repeatability is not innovative. It's designed to be predictable and repeatable, not have these aha moments, and so you have to build people that are capable of being innovative and that you have to welcome um, new ideas and you have to welcome and give people time to think. I have a a friend and and peer that um, every third Thursday in his companies, he just shuts the company down from 4 o'clock on, provides beer and wine, and says, let's put our feet up on the table and just think big thoughts and brainstorm. And the mm, very I few companies that. that allow that kind of of opportunity. There's some great models to to um, to explore. Now, not everybody can be Google and give 20% of their time to everybody to just explore ideas. But having what are called FedEx days, where um, it absolutely has to be delivered by tomorrow. You come up with some ideas, and by tomorrow, let's talk about them. Just becoming more innovative, and that's like going back to the the quote I used of all organizations are perfectly designed to get the results they're getting today, is if you're not a very innovative company, go back and look at the system. There are probably some things you're doing that make you non-innovative. Right. Right. Well, I love that. And you closed the book out in in kind of an interesting way, and I I think it's because you've had the experience of working with companies uh, in in a family-owned business, and and I've had a significant amount uh, of experience on that front as well, and the level of of distinction that can be acceptable and and I I joke uh with one of my clients and who I'm I'm still on their board today when I first went out to see them uh, a little bit over 4 years ago um the the woman who had asked me to come out and take a look at the company never never told me that it was a family owned business and she just said the CFO is going to pick you up. And so, you know, sure enough, the CFO picks me up at at Denver Airport, and we've got a rather long ride. And she's talking to me, like, really in a really familiar way. And she's, you know, talking about my client's kids. And, you know, and I'm thinking, this this is a very odd conversation. And then we get down to the actual meeting, and, you know, each person is introduced really just by their first name. So I don't know that they all have the same last name. Or that they're related. But then, you know, I'm I'm watching like in the first hour of the meeting of how they're talking to each other and treating each other and I'm thinking, Oh my God, this is awful. And then at at the break, the CFO says to me, Now, you do know I'm her mom, right? And I'm like and then and then she says, Oh, and this one is the brother in law and this one is the husband and it's like Oh, my gosh. You know, it would have been useful to know this ahead of time. And so when we came back from the break, I said to them, okay, now that I know that all of you are family, I am so relieved because I just thought you were the most dysfunctional company I had ever met. And now I know that you're just talking to each other like family. Right. <laughs> right? 
And I just laughed. And then uh, one of my last clients who who will go, remain nameless, uh, you know, in, in the corporate world is a very, very large company that started as a family-owned business. And then a large private equity company came in and put money into the company. But you still have all these vestiges yep. of the family way of doing business, which, you know, you talk about families being at cross purposes and, mm-hmm. and, oh my God, you know, and then you add in the private equity piece, which is they really want to move fast and they want to be able to flip the company and, you know, everything's about profitability and, yep. oh my gosh. So, so give me a little bit of the flavor of, of why this had to be a chapter in this book. Well, part of the my goal is to really reach out beyond the apples and the googles and the professionally managed companies. If you right. if you look around the world, Chicky, the I think it's eighty four percent of all the businesses are small or family held businesses. Now the news is filled with all of the big multinational corporations. Yes, because we see them, they're visible. But the vast majority of the businesses that affect the most people in the world are small and family businesses. So I wanted to make sure that people really understood that this is a book for everybody, not just um, right. a few power brokers in the corner office. And having run a family business and been, like you, involved with a number, whether it's on the board of directors or helping with transition or consulting, um, you, you've seen what I've seen on it is when you take two complex systems, a, a, an enterprise and a family, and put them together, it doesn't get any easier. <laughs> right? Nothing gets easier. Right, right. And so I wanted to make sure that people understood. And, and the failure mode that I see a lot is that the the family system becomes the default enterprise management system. And that may or may not be a good thing. Typically it's not. You know, DNA is not a pretty good predictor of, of management capability or desire or purpose or passion, et cetera. So... Um, and and I've just I, like you, uh, you've probably seen. I've seen too many families really be sort of torn apart by the business, rather than have it be a, an asset for them. And and so I hope that they'll gain some wisdom and and some of the tools there that uh, that I suggest. Right. And again, one of the great things that you do in this book, and it's not in every single chapter, but most of them, there are key takeaways. So if if you're a little bit ADD and want to just jump to the the key takeaways in each chapter or the recommended reading, I think that that's another thing that you do. And and you do have some recommended reading for the chapter on family business. So, uh, you know, if, if that's something that people want to dive into a little bit more deeply, you provide that mechanism. So, you know, as we come around to your final thoughts about the book. And again, remembering that people listen to this show because it's called The Game Changer, right? That happens to also be the name of my new book, uh, which I'm publishing with uh, the same publisher that you are. Uh, but, But the whole thing about how I'm wired is I just hate the status quo with a passion. So, you know, when when my producer, you know, told me we were going to talk about systems thinking, you know, of course, the the uh, rebel part of me is like, oh, my gosh, you know, we don't want to put system around everything because, right. you know, how do, how do you deal with innovation? So, um, so tell me how you believe that systems thinking and changing the game being a game changer, how do those fit? Well, I think it's it's a great um, lead-in, Chicky, and, and I'll tell you a story. I had a, a, a 
woman again who will be unnamed, but but you know, wife of a very very prominent CEO and and a very prominent CEO in her own right ran a big um, you know resort place um, that you'd be familiar with. But came to me and said, oh this all this system thing, I don't want to systematize everything. I want it to all be sort of ad hoc. And I said, how's that working for you? <laughs> not so good. Not so good. And so that's the key, and, and that's I talk in the book about both and thinking. It's not one or the other. It's not systemic and systematic or complete chaos or you know complete um, anarchy. It's you've got to do both. You have to understand that whether you want to systematize or not, the system's going to start self directing and it's going to start selecting its own purpose and it's going to start its own emergent behaviors and that's the key is that you know you'd better get out ahead of the fact that these systems are starting to be put in place and the tentacles are starting to reach into whatever you're doing and try to systematize that way of doing business and so it is a it's very much a dichotomy and this is like it's, it's the embrace of the both and it you have to be both systematic and systemic and that's very hard to do but it is the reality i think it's the it's the reality that most people deal with that i i hope the the readers and listeners will come away with is okay wow I, and now I have a, a better understanding of the dynamics that are swirling around me. I, I can't tell you how many uh, people have come up to me after a public session or after I've gone in on a board and started to share these thoughts. They're like, wow, where has this been hiding all these years? Why haven't people revealed this? Because it's so powerful to start thinking about it this way. Interesting, interesting. Well, Willie, it has been just fascinating, and and uh, I, I hope that our listeners will take the time to go to your website. Uh, how else can – is that the best way for them to follow you or to get in touch with you if they want you to come and speak on this to their organization? Yes, yeah, so if they'll go to the website, which is simplecomplexitybook.com, uh, there is a contact page there, um, and, and so that's one way to reach me. Um, also, uh, the email for that is WD, my initials, William Donaldson, WD, at simplecomplexitybook.com, and they can reach me that way. Also, follow me at uh, underscore Dr. Donaldson. Uh, on Twitter, so reach out to me any way possible, and, and I'd love to, to um, talk with them, come help them in any way I can. Perfect. So, again, we've been listening to Dr. William Donaldson, otherwise known as Willie, and the book is Simple Complexity, a Management Book for the Rest of Us. A Guide to Systems Thinking. Willie, thank you so much for your time. It has been really terrific uh, to get to know you a little bit, and I can't wait uh, to continue that process with you. Well, Chickie, I can't thank you enough. It's been a great pleasure, and I I hope we'll stay in touch, and um, uh, I appreciate you taking your time. Well, it has been really a lot of fun, and uh, for those who've been listening, Please join us on thegamechanger.network for more shows like this one about leadership and growth and innovation. And next week, we are going to be talking to Dariah Rogers, and she is the CEO of a company called Paradigm Consulting Works about a book called Decide to Profit. And I have made that decision, so I will be there, so I hope you can join me. Go out and change your game today. Thank you again for joining us. 
You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas, inspiration, innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm.